five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the Falcon 9. Hi, I'm Mark Boucher, and this is the Space Cube Podcast. This is a special podcast in that it is our 50th, and marks one year since I started the show. I want to thank our growing audience, who have contributed to having our podcast played 20,000 times so far. To keep this show going, we need your continued support. For those who are not yet supporting us through our crowdfunding site on Patreon, I would ask that you consider supporting us now. The address is patreon.com slash spaceq. My guest this week is Philip Ferguson, Associate Professor, Department of Mechanical Engineering at the University of Manitoba, a position he started last fall. Phil was also recently named the NSERC Magellan Aerospace Industrial Research Chair in Satellite Engineering at the University. As you'll hear... Phil has had a pretty eventful career working in industry before settling in at the university. He received his PhD in aerospace engineering at MIT and has worked on the International Space Station's Special Purpose Dextrous Manipulator Program, commonly referred to as Dexter, Canada's first microsatellite MOST, NEOSAT, the Radarsat Constellation Mission, and drones. Along the way, he's worked at MDA, Dynacon, Microsat Systems Canada Inc., Magellan Aerospace, and Precision Hawk. In our conversation, you'll hear how Phil is helping in trying to make the University of Manitoba a small satellite innovation hub. Welcome, Phil, to the Space Q podcast. Thank you, Mark. Uh, happy to be here. This is a special podcast in that when it airs, it will be one year since the podcast was launched. I am honored. I'm honored to be a part of that anniversary. <laughs> yes, and it looks like the show's doing well, so we are going to keep at it. All right. Excellent. So I believe we first met at the Canadian Space Summit that was being held in Calgary in 2011. At we the did. T- at the time, you were working for Magellan on the Radar Radarsat Constellation mission. Now that the RCM program is about to have all three satellites launched this fall. What are your thoughts on the program and what it means to Canada? Yeah, so the, uh, you know, I, I think Canada has a really strong history uh, in space. And I mean, a, a lot of people, when they look at Canada's history in space, they, they I think, you know, quite rightly look at space robotics and uh, the great work that SPAR did uh, and then MDA with uh, CanadaArm, CanadaArm2 and MBS and, and Dexter. But I think some people... Uh, don't see uh, the the great work that Canada has done in uh, in the satellite industry. You know, obviously starting with Alouette, but I think the uh, the impact that RadarSat One and RadarSat Two has had on not just Canada but around the world uh, is is really difficult to summarize because it's just so far reaching. And, uh, and, and, you know, with now RadarSat Constellation, we'll have three satellites uh, working uh, in, in tandem. Uh, and then and I think also likely with, with RadarSat 2 data as well, we'll have unprecedented uh, uh, coverage uh, from using w- with, uh, I guess, radar data coverage uh, of the planet. But, but, I, but I think it, what's important to acknowledge also is the strides that Canada continues to make uh, in the satellite industry. 
Um, there, there have been some uh, so, some exciting advances that uh, that Magellan did in putting together their their bus for uh, for RadarSat. Uh, there's a there's a new power control unit there that I that I know is getting traction in, in some other uh, space uh, space programs. There's uh, their CNDH computer uh, that is a sort of a, a follow-on from the Cassiope computer. Um, yeah, you know, and, and then and then what what I think was some some pretty innovative work that was being done on on the spacecraft structure as well. Uh, so so I think uh, what RadarSat really represents is a continuation of Canada's uh, strength in the satellite industry. Uh, but but I think that we can also learn more uh, about where we need to be going in the satellite industry from some of the challenges that we ran into with uh, with RadarSat. All right. So before we talk about your new position at the University of Manitoba and your work there, I have to ask you about some of the programs you've worked on in the past. Before you went to grad school, you worked at MDA on Dexter. If I read your bio correctly, you actually started working at MDA before you finished your undergrad degree. That must have been an exciting uh, to work on such an important uh, International Space Station program. How did you get the job and and what did you do on, on the Dexter program? Yeah, I you know I have to say so the the job that I had at MDA actually when I started there it was Spar I, I worked for Spar and then while I was there they transitioned to MDA um, it was part of a professional experience year uh, that I had during my undergraduate degree with um, University of Toronto um, so when I uh, when I went to interview there I, I, I interviewed with uh, you and I think many of your listeners will know uh, Craig Thornton. Uh, uh, at Spar Aerospace, and he, uh, he, he, I remember he gave me a tour uh, during my interview, and and we walked out into the clean room, and there was a there was a Canada arm that had just come back from a space shuttle mission that was being refurbished, and and, and of course, uh, uh, Canada arm two at the time was being assembled in the clean room, and and we we talked about some of the technologies, and uh, he he asked me what I would like to do for my co-op term, my sixteen month co-op term, and I, I told him I was interested in uh, in space systems uh, and control systems and and he asked if I would like to work with some of the control systems engineers that were putting together the special purpose dexterous manipulator which we all know now is as Dexter and and my eyes sort of opened up real wide and I said sure you know I'd love to and so I was uh, I was honored uh, to be given such a such an important and interesting uh, co-op term to work alongside um, so some some really formative engineers there uh, you, you know Simon Grocott um, sadly the the late uh, Raja Mukherjee who who just recently passed away a few days ago um, and 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 really the the whole team of space systems engineers at Spar Aerospace and MDA there uh, that that have been so successful in really putting Canada on the map when it comes to uh, space robotics. Um, I, uh, I, I worked very closely also in, in what they refer to as the, the GT lab, the ground test lab. And, and this, uh, this is really sort of the, the thing that, that young engineers and well and old engineers too sort of dream of is to have a full-size robot arm in a lab that you get to, uh, that you get to play with. And so I worked very closely with a gentleman named uh, Brian McDonald. Uh, who was really a, a fantastic mentor of mine, and we uh, assembled this this robot with uh, various sensing systems, and it included a quite a quite an elaborate mass offloading system, so that we could operate this arm as if it was in uh, in zero g, and uh, we used that to test out uh, force moment accommodation, uh, uh, with, which um, SPDM or Dexter needed in order to uh, grapple uh, objects. 
And ultimately, we used it to uh, introduce FMA and uh, that force moment accommodation and Dexter to the astronaut corps. We, we flew in Chris Hadfield and Nancy Curry and Mike Massimino to, uh, to Brampton, and we introduced, uh, introduced the robot to them for the first time. And, uh, you know, they'd obviously seen pictures and images of it before, but it was the first time that they had ever sat at the controls and, and used it. And it was an eye-opening experience, and, and it was really, it was a co-op of dreams for me because I got to spend time at astronauts. I spent time working on control systems. But then I also spent uh, two months at, in the David Florida lab uh, going through some preliminary engineering model tests of the end effector for Dexter, known as the OTCM. So uh, it was it was a fantastic time. And uh, I, I'm just really thankful that I had that opportunity. Now, so that's a great way to start a career. Um, <laughs> and not only that, but you have a really good story that you told me uh, when we were in Quebec City a few weeks ago at the Cassie Astro 18 conference uh, that relates to Chris Hadfield and his first experience uh, <laughs> playing with the arm. Um, if you can just recount it without some of the colorful language as to what Chris <laughs> thought of, of, of the actual uh I suppose uh, experience at first. Yeah, well, you know, it 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 was really a it was a classic lesson in how to introduce new technology to people that are potentially not not familiar with it. And and you know, as an interesting aside, it it is the topic of my research now, which is how to do appropriate technology integration. But but really, what happened was was that we all, as a bunch of control systems engineers, thought that it was the most obvious thing in the world that you would want to have a robot that effectively controls itself when you uh, when you want to birth boxes or remove things from space station and and this whole idea that you would have to control something manually seems so foreign to all of us well why would you do it manually if you could have a control system do it for you um, that we learned very quickly was not the attitude that most astronauts have <laughs> they they want to be able to be in control and and you know for for good reason I mean they're the ones that are, that have their lives on the lines that are up there uh, um, using all of these systems and they're and they were quite used to the way that SRMS worked the this the Canada arm on the space shuttle and the way that uh, SSRMS was going to work as well the Canada arm 2 on space station so when we sat them down and and uh, turned on uh, force moment economy for the first time and the robot started sensing uh, Im very gentle impacts with uh, the end of the arm and started redirecting the direction of the arm contrary to where the astronauts were trying to send it, they got quite annoyed. And, uh, you know, they were using what we referred to as modified Cooper Harper ratings, which is a modified scale of one to 10, originally used to, to uh, rate the controllability of aircraft. And uh, we had it modified uh, to rate the controllability of robotics. Where 10 is they love it, it's great, it's controllable, it's safe, and one is, uh, you know, don't use this, it'll kill people. And, uh, and, and all three astronauts after our first day uh, were so frustrated uh, by them thinking the robot wasn't doing what they were telling it to do that they gave it a Cooper Harper rating of one and, and, uh, and left abruptly uh, back to the hotel room, <laughs> which left a lot of us <laughs> scratching our heads and... Uh, uh, saying, well, now what? And of course, there were there were many, many people in the room at the time. I, I was uh, my role during all of these tests was to act as the quote, the, the Capcom uh, the astronauts specifically asked to only interact with one engineer so that they didn't have a million people talking to them at once. And and that was me. And so I had the uh, at times unenviable task to sit down beside the astronauts, including Chris, and try to describe to them what was happening. And I clearly did a terrible job. 
so the next day, you know, we regrouped and we said, okay, you know, the astronauts want to control this on their own. Let's turn off force moment accommodation and let them do it sort of old school and let them look at the uh, contact forces and try to zero the forces on their own and birth a box. And, uh, you know, the three astronauts that we had there were able to do it with varying degrees of, uh, of success. Uh, Chris Hadfield was probably the best. Uh, I think he was able to do it in just under 30 minutes. Uh, Nancy Curry took uh, about 45 minutes to do it. And Mike Massimino uh, <laughs> it, it eventually kind of laughed and said, OK, OK, I give up. I, I, I can't do it. And then we turned on force moment accommodation and we asked them just to humor us and say, OK, now I don't want you to control the robot at all other than just to apply a straight in hand controller command. Don't try to correct any misalignments. Don't try to drive the robot in. I just want you to let the robot guide itself in. And they did, and they were each able to birth the box within under under 30 seconds. And uh, they were very impressed. They saw the click of the little, uh, there's a little uh, um, mechanism that clicks and shows a positive uh, grapple when it's all done. And they saw that happen, and all three of the astronauts asked for their Cooper Harper rating forms back, and they scratched out their one, and they circled a 10, and said they loved it, and they got back on their T uh, on their on their trainer jets, and they flew back to Houston. So we sort of sort of wiped the sweat off our brows there, and said, "Ooh, that could have ended really badly." <laughs> But, uh, but, you know, I, I suppose you could say the, the rest is history. I mean, uh, SPAR, or SPAR and MDA went on to uh, further hone those control systems and turn that product into an amazingly successful and useful tool on space station today. That's a great story and some great lessons in there. Okay, so uh, I, after that, uh, you went on and you uh, to graduate school. Uh, and you got your PhD at uh, MIT. Uh, then you went to work for Dynacom and then Microsat Systems Canada. And while you were there, you worked on Neosat, another uh, iconic uh, Canadian program. Uh, but that one has had its ups and downs, in, including some technical challenges. What was your experience working on that project? Yeah, so, so Neosat was interesting because uh, Neosat really rode on the coattails of the phenomenally successful uh, most microsatellite, uh, which, which was a joint project between uh, SFL and, uh, and and Dynacon, and and, uh, and and as a lot of people say, so one one of the biggest enemies I think to a technology program at sometimes can be very early success. And, uh, and most was way more successful beyond anyone's uh, expectations, it, but both in terms of its, its technical performance, but I think also in terms of its, of its programmatics, uh, you know, its budgets. I mean, there, there were a lot of things that just kind of went the right way, luckily, with uh, most. I mean, most ended up getting a, a fire sale for a launch. Uh, it, it, they ended up being able to use some extremely inexpensive um, and yet very high performing uh, materials and electronics um, it, through, through, a lot of, through a lot of very fortunate pathways. And, and then when it came time to propose and execute the Neosat program, there were a lot of questions like, well, you know, you did this with most. Can you do that also for Neosat? And in some cases, the answer was yes, but in some cases, the answer was kind of, well, no. I mean, we, 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 we can't get a launch for that inexpensive anymore. And, uh, and, and, and there, are, there are some other challenges that came up with Neosat. So 
At the same time, though, uh, it was still very early. I mean, this is now back in 2006, and while that doesn't seem like that long ago, it's it's an e- it's eons ago when it, when we start talking about small satellites. Um, it, you know, I mean, SFL was still uh, uh, was in was getting started at that time and, and was doing a lot of great things, but certainly hadn't accomplished nearly what they have uh, t- today. And so, so there still was this. Uh, this feeling that these questions in people's minds of well, what is it that uh, that a microsatellite can actually achieve? Uh, could we ever get microsatellites to achieve the kind of fine pointing that NeoSat required to detect asteroids and resonant space objects? It, it, it while most was impressive, NeoSat needed to do that and a lot more uh, in order to be fully successful. So. It, it was it was a stressful program uh, be, because we knew that we were really seriously pushing the limits of what that technology uh, could do. And, you know, but then, of course, in hindsight, when we look at the problems that Neosat had, uh, some of the problems were some of the problems that we had anticipated. But many of the crippling problems were the ones that nobody anticipated. Right. I mean, the things we ended up using identical uh, hardware that most had used that worked fine for most and then failed, you know, uh, a couple years into the Neosat mission for no apparent reason. Um, it's just sometimes you get lucky and sometimes you get unlucky. Uh, again, though, as you had pointed out, though, Mark, and, and, I'll, and I'll reiterate, I, I, I cannot say enough good things about the team that uh, uh, from DRDC and Magellan and uh, MSCI and CSA that, that, that all worked together to um, uh, to 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 fix Neosat really and 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 make it make it a success. It uh, it's phenomenal and you know and while it's unfortunate that they're not able to use it for the asteroid part of that mission, uh, the fact that they use it daily right now for uh, DRDC and uh, the HEOS part of the mission, looking for resonance space objects, I think is a testament to the to the quality of the team that was able to recover that satellite. But. Uh, you know, it. Uh, I'll, I'll say again, it was a great time for small satellites. Uh, it was a really interesting time, and and when you look back at it now, and what we're able to do with small satellites, and the and the pioneering that SFL and and other companies that have really pushed on the small satellite framework have done, it uh, it, it was a great time to be working in small satellites. And when we say SFL, we're referring to the uh, University of Toronto Institute of Aerospace Spaceflight Laboratory. That's great. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for thanks for spelling that out. And uh, which just celebrated its uh, or is celebrating its twentieth anniversary and has done uh, incredible things in Canada. And actually, I've had uh, Robert Z on the show talking about uh, what they've done over the years. All right. So you've worked on most. You've worked on NeoSat. You worked on uh, RadarSat constellation mission. Pretty good. Uh, you know, trio of projects just there. Uh, you've also done uh, work with drones and Precision Hawk, which we'll we'll get to in a minute. But you've recently, last fall, you wound up, uh, or last year, you wound up leaving industry and you went to academia. So now uh, you find yourself uh, as an associate professor at the University of Manitoba. Was getting into academia something you always wanted to do? <laughs> you know, no, actually, it, it wasn't. Um, when when I when I left graduate school, I I left with uh, uh, sort of thinking, well, you know, that was fun, but uh, but what I really want to do is get in and start solving some some industry problems and uh, and and move away from from uh, from academia. 
But what I found when I got into industry was the things that I kept getting drawn to were the research side, the pushing envelopes, uh, finding new ways to use new technology and getting that technology in the hands of the people in industry that can that can really use it to change the industry. Um, you know, I, I mean, I, while it's true that I have been involved in a whole lot of, pro of programs, most of the programs that I'm involved in, I ended up leaving them before they actually went into full implementation. You know, so I, I, I worked on, uh, I worked on Dexter in the kind of the young, very uh, developmental phases of Dexter, where we were trying to solve problems with FMA and trying to trying to find out ways to to inform the astronauts how this works, you know. And then on NeoSat, I, I worked on that sort of long enough to figure out what the point spread functions needed to look like for uh, for you know star trackers and and what the attitude control system needed to do. And and then same with uh, with RadarSat constellation. You know, I worked with that long enough to uh, to sort of bring it to the build phase, and then I was. I was off to something else, and and so what what I what I started to realize was what I what I loved what I loved the most about the space industry is this aspect where we get to sort of push on technology to make it do things that we've never really thought of before, and uh, and some of my most rewarding parts of working in industry have been when I've been on that on that research and development side of things. Um, you know, I, I, I ended up doing a lot of that when I was at Magellan working on RadarSat. I, we had a lot of uh, partnerships with the University of Manitoba, University of Alberta, University of Calgary, uh, Rutherford Appleton Laboratory in the UK. And, and it was these partnerships that, that, that I felt I really, where I really felt at home. And, uh, and so when the opportunity arose for me to step back into academia, but with, uh, with a slightly non-traditional academic uh, appointment. I, I have an industrial research chair, which means that I that I spend a lot of my time working with industry and developing and executing research programs that are very relevant to industry. It uh, it, it really sort of makes me feel at home. Uh, so some some people say that when you make your third career change, your third or fourth career change, you kind of should be moving into your hobby. <laughs> it should be the <laughs> hobby, the, the thing that makes you sort of sigh and say, "Yeah, this is what I'm meant to do." And and I, I it may be corny to say this, but I, but I do feel that uh, every morning when I get up, it's uh, it's what I feel like I was meant to do: do industrial research from an academic setting. Uh, it's it's a lot of fun. I really enjoy it. It's interesting you say that because if I think about it in, in the terms you just said, I'm on my third career, <laughs> right. which started as a hobby and actually turned into a career. So and it's one that I love. So in in, in what you just said is kind of interesting in that um, I was recently at a um, space day at Western University and I participated in a panel about non-traditional careers. And one of the things that I learned there, which uh, I'd have to double check, but I'm pretty sure I remember this correctly, is that they said that, and they were talking about, you know, what's the value of getting a PhD? And um, it, it, what was interesting was that only 3% of people who actually get PhDs wind up working in academia. So statistically, you're on a small group now. <laughs> Okay, so um, when you joined the University of Manitoba last fall, uh, one of the initial goals was to secure, and you mentioned it, a Natural Sciences and Engineering Research Council of Canada, 
or NSERC grant, and in this particular case, an industrial research chair grant. So um, that goal was achieved uh, early uh, in May when uh, it was formally announced that you would be getting the Magellan Aerospace Industrial Research Chair in Satellite Engineering. What do you? What does it mean to you to have the kind of support that you're getting right away from NSERC and Magellan? Oh, it's it, uh, well. That, that's it's hard to put into words. You know, I most uh, when most new faculty start, uh, they uh, you know m- most end up with a with a startup grant of some sort. But they 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 struggle a little bit to find uh, to find the kind of um, funding that they need to establish a research program, set up a research lab, hire graduate students, get their name out there, travel, do what they need to do. Um, in my case, thanks to the incredible support from Magellan, uh, NSERC, and uh, University of Manitoba, I've been able to, uh, to to really focus on getting my research program kicked off and not have to focus as much. I mean, as a professor, we, we all focus on trying to find funding and writing proposals, but I, I can I can honestly focus on just establishing my research program without having to be concerned constantly about where money is going to come from. Uh, it's uh, the, and and it's not and it's a special kind of support also, right? It's not just somebody writing me a check. It's uh, I have tremendous support from the management, the engineering staff, the technical staff, the quality staff at uh, Magellan uh, that that have an honest um, vested interest in making sure that uh, that we succeed with this research program, because if this research program does succeed and and I'm confident that it will and, and by succeed, I mean, turn the space industry on its head and start trying to find ways in which we can use uh, new technology that's growing all around us uh, in in the space industry, then then Magellan benefits, and and the entire Canadian space industry benefits, and all of Canada benefits, and really the you know, the whole global space industry benefits by us unlocking some of these technologies, and so um, so it's uh, it it really truly is is uh, is a blessing. I feel very lucky uh, to be uh, to be the recipient of this uh, of this chair. And uh, and it's something that that I work towards every day to return that value to the university, to NSERC, and uh, and and to Magellan, uh, because it, because it is it is such a huge uh, springboard for my research program. So it's a springboard for your research program, but it's also a spring springboard for the student. So how many students typically get involved in in these types of programs? Well, so uh, over the uh, five years that the chair will run initially, and it's, it's a renewable chair, uh, so I'll, I'll be here much longer than five years, uh, we have planned on uh, training uh, anywhere between 14 and 17 uh, uh, highly qualified personnel or students. We call them HQP sometimes. Uh, but uh, so approximately 14 to 17 uh, students will be trained using the funding uh, just out of this chair alone, uh, and that's a mix of uh, undergraduate in the ter- in the form of you know a summer research assistants, uh, master students, PhD students, uh, and, uh, and 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 other other researchers as well. So uh, it's it, as you mentioned, a, a huge part of this program is the uh, is the training aspect of it, and and it's one of the things that I think really sets it apart from other uh, other research programs in the area right now. And it, and it draws upon a, a very strong partnership that we've established between the University of Manitoba and Magellan Aerospace that started back in the um, Radarsat 
Constellation Mission Assembly Days, where um, the the clean room that's at Magellan right now is actually co-owned by Magellan and uh, and the University of Manitoba, and, uh, in the partnership that resulted in in this chair being established as well. And uh, and through that shared facility, we will be building satellites together. We'll be testing satellite components in their vacuum chamber and on uh, Magellan's uh, vibration table. Uh, and and uh, and weekly, uh, we have interactions between the engineering staff, the technical staff, the quality staff, the management staff, and and all of my graduate students, uh, making sure that the problems that they're working on remain relevant in today's space uh, industry. And uh, and, and, and that this research program really remains focused uh, to make sure that we get the, the most uh, uh, research content out of this, but also, and I think perhaps more importantly, um, the, uh, the best commercialization opportunities that we can. Because ultimately, it, it will be the commercialization opportunities and the and the growth that we see in the industry that happens out of this research share that will enable us to renew it in five years' time and in 10 years' time again. So uh, when uh, the chair was announced, uh, the press release was put out, it said um, the industrial research chair in satellite engineering creates a research program to speed up the costly and lengthy development process currently required for manufacturing satellites. It will help make satellite technology less expensive and more accessible than currently possible and will pave the way for growth in the academic and commercial sectors uh, for the benefit of Canadian society. So, simple question, what's the plan to make that goal a reality? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's, a, that's an easy one, right? That's a, that's a thanks for the softball question. Uh, so, so um, yeah, I mean, it's 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 absolutely a, a lofty goal. But, but you know, I'll, I'll, I'll back up a little bit and, and, uh, and and I'll say, you know, if you were to ask, and I'm fairly confident that this is true, that if you were to ask any engineer uh, working in the space industry today what their biggest frustration is, I, I think that they will all unanimously say that their frustration is how difficult it is for them to integrate uh, and, and take advantage of some of the new technologies that are growing all around us in, in, in the space industry, like uh, like additive manufacturing and adaptive control and uh, machine learning, um, composite uh, innovations in composite manufacturing. And so, you know, I, I mean, I'm certainly not the first researcher to stand up and say, hey, you know what, we should we should use adaptive control in space or, hey, let's start 3D printing parts or let, let's start sandwiching some interesting sensors and actuators between uh, composite panels and use that in space. Th these ideas aren't aren't new. Um, but unfortunately, uh, many of these ideas have yet to really make it into the into the space industry, and 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 I'm and I'm confident that the reason why that's the case, or I'm fairly certain the reason why this is the case, is because the the research has has sort of stopped. It's left this chasm, this this valley of death, if you will, between the 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 technology readiness of the of the whatever the technology is that we've developed and where it needs to be to actually implement it in in a space program and and uh and and while i think some researchers sort of look at that valley of death and say bah you know that's uh that's just an implementation detail and i'm not going to publish a paper on that I, I challenge that and I say, you know what, I, I think that we end up learning a lot of really valuable research um, when we do take that step and we do start asking questions of saying, you know what, it's one thing to say that we can print, I don't know, a rocket nozzle out of 3D printing uh, technologies, but what does it take to actually 
verify that that nozzle is good? What kinds of inspection techniques do we need to use to uh, to ensure that embedded uh, cable harnessing in a uh, in a composite panel uh, meets whatever standards we need it to meet in order to to withstand the rigors of spaceflight? Uh, you know, and then start questioning some of the aspects of spaceflight that we've all just sort of assumed to be a given like like you know today nothing flies on a rocket without a mass properties tests being done and and so we're challenging things like that saying really you know today's technologies we can estimate quite well what mass properties are without having to spin it on a mass properties table or we could even measure these on orbit so 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 i guess you know your question is how do i anticipate actually achieving this goal uh you know, I, I think I think we're we're starting at it a, a, a small pieces at a time, and 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 I think really my goal here is to start really questioning some of the assumptions that we've made for the last five decades in this space industry from their very core, and saying you know what what really is our hang up with using an adaptive control or machine learning? Is it? it I mean, and I fairly certain I know the answers to some of these things already. It's the unpredictability. So I'm starting to address questions like, well, if it's unpredictability that we're concerned with, what if we could write um, safety measures or wrappers around uh, around some of these items that prevent them from causing catastrophic problems on space, but enable us pathways to demonstrate some of these technologies um, on orbit? And, 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 and I think actually, and, and I, know, I know you mentioned you you were going to ask a few questions about Precision Hawk and a little bit later, but I, I think these are things actually that the drone industry uh, is doing very very well. Um, and and if I might, I can just give you a quick little example of that and and say that you know in the drone industry, um, I think we've seen a lot of uh, recent positive motion uh, from Transport Canada and the FAA in in enabling drones in the national airspace for commercial use. And, and, uh, and I think it's safe to say that that did not come easy. Uh, you know, when we first started, when drones were first really starting to get moving in the you know, 2013, 2014 timeframe, the FAA and Transport Canada viewed them as manned aircraft and wanted them to obey and to abide by the same kinds of assembly and uh, engineering standards that you would build a Cessna to or a Boeing 777. And, and of course, that was not realistic because uh, because many of these drone companies were startups and they just simply didn't have the resources. And, and when you're selling a drone for $500, you're not going to put, you know, millions and millions of dollars worth of NRE into developing this little thing. And so, so what the FAA has really come up with, and, and I like this, it's an example of several different things. They, they came up with this one thing called SOUP, and it stands for Software of Unknown Pedigree. And, 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 I, and I think it's a genius way to allow us, to, that did allow us in the drone industry to integrate new technologies in a safe way. And, and really what this is, is it's a way to allow people to write flight control software that doesn't need to abide by the strict aviation standards, and I, I may get the number wrong, I think it's DO-178 is the standard that uh, aircraft software needs to be written to. And as you can imagine, it's an aviation standard, it's very onerous, it requires a lot of testing, and, and asking a drone startup company to write their software to DO-178 would mean them having to staff up tremendously and spend uh, months and months and months writing their software. And so instead, they said, okay, let's create this concept called SOUP, Software of Unknown Pedigree, and we'll create requirements for what a software wrapper needs to look like that will enable us to fly 
uh, untested and potentially radical software on uh, on uh, aviation platforms as a means of integrating this technology. So I think the drone industry has done a really good job with that. And uh, I think the space industry can take a page out of that book. And, and that's and that's part of my research as well. Okay. So uh, you mentioned this a little bit earlier, sort of beat me to the punch. Um, four years ago, uh, Magellan Aerospace and University of Manitoba with support from the government of Canada and I think Manitoba, uh, developed and opened up the, or, or built, I should say, the Advanced Satellite Integration Facility. Um, that facility was used for the RadarSat Constellation mission uh, during the build phase. Um, I, I have a couple questions related to that. What are you going to do with the facility? And other than the Ataya Space Flight Lab in Toronto, is there another facility like it at a university in Canada. Okay, so uh, so what I'll be doing at the Advanced Satellite Integration Facility, or we sometimes refer to it as the ASIF, uh, we will be assembling our space systems there. Uh, any space system that requires a, uh, a fully certified clean room, um, which which actually uh, my, I am leading the team from Manitoba for the uh, the Manitoba CubeSat program. Uh, it's funded by the Canadian Space Agency as part of their CubeSat program. Uh, so we'll be building our CubeSat there, but we will we'll also be building other uh, prototype systems uh, that we want to test in space-like uh, environments, um, such as the thermal vacuum chamber that is also located in, in the ASIF there the, at, at Magellan. So, uh, so I, I guess in a nutshell, it will be our assembly and test house. Um, you, you know, almost consider it, consider it as the University of Manitoba's own private STEC, if you will. I mean, it obviously doesn't have nearly the kind of instrumentation and facilities that STEC has uh, in, in Europe, but uh, but it does have it does have what we need to put together space system prototypes and actually full full fledged uh, space systems like uh, what will be needed um, for the for for our Manitoba Sat uh, one um, satellite. Uh, so that the first question was, what am I going to do with it? What was your second? And question? the second one is. Um, is there another university in Canada that has this type of facility other than the Space Flight Lab in Toronto? Right. So um, I am not aware of any. I, I, I know that there are some small uh, clean tent facilities uh, that have cropped up in universities across Canada to support um, uh, things like the Canadian Satellite Design Challenge. Uh, so, uh, but in terms of a fully-fledged uh, permanent um, clean room with vibration table and thermal chambers and thermal vacuum chambers and, and all of the electronic and mechanical assembly fixtures that we need, uh, I'm fairly certain uh, the answer is no. Not aside from the Space Flight Laboratory at University of Toronto. So with this new chair that you've got and working with Magellan, is it safe to say that... Uh, University of Manitoba and Manitoba as a province and Winnipeg, uh, you know, is sort of getting a leg up in in some respects in further developments in in CubeSats by having this kind of facility. I think I think absolutely, uh, absolutely. The, the the answer the answer is yes. You know, um, uh, Winnipeg and, and Manitoba uh, as a province are, have been uh, leaders in aviation. And, and in space for, for several decades. Uh, you know, the, 
the space program in Canada technically started uh, here in Winnipeg with the Black Brant sounding rocket, which was manufactured at, at Winnipeg's uh, Bristol Aerospace Facility that then became uh, Magellan. So, um, so, so the idea of ha- of Winnipeg becoming a or becoming a leader in space systems development is is really really not new, uh, and I, I think really what this facility represents is an extension and and uh, kind of a bolstering of of that capability, uh, and 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 really really I think it puts Winnipeg and and the province of Manitoba on on the map here for space systems development, and and I think in particular really. Um, uh, the 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 small small to medium sized uh, space space systems development as well, uh, you know SFL I, again I, I can't say enough good stuff about them they're 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 doing wonderful things in Ontario but I but I think our space industry has grown to the point where uh, where we need more than than just uh, than just the spaceflight lab so we're we're looking to uh, to fill that void here. And um, now having said that. In the recent space technology and development uh, contracts awarded last week uh, by the Canadian, or not awarded, but announced last week, they were awarded earlier this year by the Canadian Space Agency, uh, Manitoba only uh, got uh, one contract. Um, so I suppose there's a little bit of work that needs to be done there, but you're there to, 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 to get that kickstarted in a way. Uh, and probably like 95% of the contracts went to Ontario and Quebec. Um, so in discussing uh, or looking at your career, uh, your last job was at Precision Hawk, which was a bit of a change for you. Uh, that company develops UAV and drone remote sensing applications. And from what I understand, you came away from there with some unique ideas on how to use drones for small satellite research. Can you explain to me, uh, uh, how that fits into your current research at the university? Sure. So um, one of the big challenges uh, in developing space systems is in our uh, ability or or lack thereof to demonstrate uh, our space systems operating in something that closely resembles a space environment. Um, you know, we, we have lots of we have lots of interesting stand-ins that we can do for that. You know, there's obviously simulations that we can do. People use air bearing tables quite a bit to have satellites moving in a two-dimensional plane. Some people use uh, uh, parabolic flight, like the on the Vomit Comet, to get 25 seconds or so of, of microgravity to demonstrate things. But of course, that's expensive and limited. You know, and then other people wait for demonstration orbital launches, uh, and and that's of course time-consuming and costs a lot of money. So, so we started sort of brainstorming. Well, what are some other ways that we can raise technology readiness levels? These, these TRLs that we love to talk about so much, and and start demonstrating navigation and control technologies uh, in, a, in a 1G environment. And, uh, and, you know, with the time that I spent in the drone industry, I saw some pretty innovative uh, stuff that people have been able to do with drones indoors. Uh, they've been able to, uh, so some, some people have been able to uh, make these drones uh, behave in ways that I don't think anybody had ever thought of before. And, 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 I, and I saw a video once, and this was, this was years ago, of people that were sort of juggling drones, that they, they had made these drones sort of feel as if they're a little bit lighter than air, and, 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 they're, and they're juggling them as if they were uh, really light beach balls or something. And so, so clearly what they had done is they had gone and modified their, um, 
their autopilot controller to, uh, uh, to, to, if you will, lighten the drone somewhat artificially. And, and it got, I got thinking about that and saying, well, you know, if you could do that, is there any limit really to what you could do to uh, make a drone behave as if it were a completely different vehicle or a, a different vehicle operating in a completely different dynamic environment? And so, so what we are doing with drones right now is, is we, like other researchers, many of them, actually including the University of Toronto, uh, have uh, indoor drone labs. But for, for me, the purpose of my drone lab is a little different. I, I'm not doing it because I want to find ways to control drones, um, although that could be part of it. What I'm trying to do is I'm, I'm using drones to, in a sense, fake out the dynamics of whatever system I'm interested in. So a, a good example here would be, uh, I could use drones uh, to mimic a microgravity environment. Um, I can use drones to mimic uh, adjacent orbits that are following the Clohesse-Wilshire equations that, that dictate how uh, two satellites move with respect to one another in neighboring orbits. Um, I could use uh, these drones to mimic the dynamics of uh, spacecraft flying in halo orbits around Lagrange points if we're looking into deep space uh, space stations like what NASA and the Canadian Space Agency are interested in. And so and, and so, so that, that was really the genesis of this test bed is we're saying, okay, let's find a way to do hardware in the loop uh, uh, testing and, and demonstrations of control systems uh, that typically have been limited to uh, either two-dimensional motions or just computer simulations, and and that and that that's really what this this drone test bed aims to do. But you know, since conceiving it, we've now come up with other applications for it as well, and and that that are aligning with some other interesting NASA uh, initiatives. Where I know there's talk about now putting drones on Mars. Uh, I've heard, I've read articles about NASA being interested in drones on Titan. And uh, so, so one of the things that we're looking into doing as well is saying, okay, well, can we make this drone behave as if it's flying through a thick atmosphere in a reduced gravity environment, uh, what you might see on Titan or on Mars? And and with that, we really, uh, what I'm really effectively creating is a vehicle test bed where I get to 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 define the dynamics. And, uh, and I think that's really exciting because uh, hardware in the loop demonstrations is, uh, are, are, I think, what will be an enabling technology for, for, for getting these new kinds of navigation and control technologies in the hands of people that can actually use them in industry. Yeah, I think it's exciting uh, to see uh, drone technology uh, used on other planetary bodies. And as you said, uh, NASA has announced that they're going to have a quote-unquote helicopter uh, on a mission uh, uh, on Mars, which is going to be quite something. And I know from my experience working in the high Arctic that um, uh, having, uh, we researched way back when in 2002, 2005, uh, you know, using uh, drones ahead of uh, uh, an EVA for the astronauts. So exactly, yeah. I mean, I I, I think you know um, the 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 applications are endless, and, uh, and and so when when it when it came time for me to propose to the university that I wanted a 
a big lab space with a big net around it that will allow me to fly drones indoors for a variety of control experiments like this. Uh, it was it was pretty easy for the university to say yes uh, because there are so many avenues for us to use a facility uh, like that. Uh, not, not the least of which is um, space. So uh, it's exciting to be a part of it. And now another exciting project which you're a part of is the Canadian CubeSat project. And uh, recently, the Canadian Space Agency announced uh, which educational institutions across the country would be participating. Uh, they made the announcement at yours, uh, at the University of Manitoba. So tell me a little bit about uh, Manitoba Sat One and uh, how you're going to change the name of the satellite and, yeah. and, what, and, and what the goals of the satellite are. Right. So, uh, so Manitoba Sat One, yeah, it's uh, it's a stand-in name, uh, I, I, which actually is a great lead into what I think uh, one of the primary goals of Manitoba Sat One is, which is to to pull in uh, students and researchers from uh, a number of different institutions across Manitoba and and in Ontario as well uh, to collaborate together and uh, and, and really really provide outreach to the Canadian public about what space technology is about and, uh, and, and, and how we're using satellite technology to solve other problems. But the primary payload of Manitoba Sat 1, uh, which, which, by the way, part of our outreach there is to uh, have a contest to rename Manitoba Sat 1. <laughs> so we'll be looking to some of our, uh, our elementary school partners to execute that, uh, and, that uh, contest for us. And for, the, for, uh, for, for, for the audience out there, I already knew that, so <laughs> which is why I led into it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. So uh, the, our primary payload is being led by uh, Dr. Ed Cloutis at uh, the University of Man- uh, sorry University of Winnipeg, and he is one of the uh, principal investigators for the Osiris Rex mission. And uh, as as you know, as I'm sure your listeners know as well, this is the sample return mission uh, that's currently uh, in space and uh, should be pulling samples off of an asteroid soon. I forget when, but they'll be returning those satellites or sorry those samples uh, back to Earth. And, and of course, then when we get those samples back to Earth, we'll then have the challenge of interpreting what that what that means, what the what the what the data means. And so, so what uh, Professor Cloutier is interested in doing is taking some known samples uh, of uh, moon rock and other other types of regolith, uh, other other things that are likely stand-ins for um, asteroid material. We'll be exposing them to the space environment, the solar environment, the radiation environment, the thermal environment, and we'll be taking multispectral images of the, of this uh, of these rocks and dust and other materials, and watching how they change over time. And so, so what this will do is it will sort of put in context the single snapshot in time that we'll get with the data that we get from uh, from Osiris Rex. And it will it'll sort of add that time element to it. So if we see something that looks similar to uh, I don't know something that has been in space for six months versus one month or two months, well, we might be able to draw some better conclusions out of that. But but also uh, in addition to that science application, uh, we're using Manitoba Sat One as a platform for technology demonstration as well. So we've partnered with York University, and uh, Dr. Regina Lee has uh, a, a couple of pieces of equipment that we'll be flying on Manitoba Sat One to get some valuable space heritage out of them. That's a new sun sensor and a new magnetorker rod uh, that that she's developing. Uh, Dr. Regina Lee with her graduate students at York University. Uh, 
but but I think perhaps one of the most exciting parts of uh, Manitoba Sat One is the outreach component that I alluded to before. Um, on our team, it, you know, in, in addition to our advisors that we have from Magellan Aerospace, we've partnered with a school in the Interlake region of Manitoba. This is just north of Winnipeg. Uh, this is uh, Stonewall Centennial School, and they have a space club. And they're no strangers to space technology. They've put some experiments on space station before. They had some tomato seeds up there that they're now growing. And I'll say they're actually noticing some interesting differences between the seeds that went to space and didn't go to space. But they are designing some very key parts of our satellite. They're designing a little sundial that will tell us the sun direction on our uh, sample panel there. But they're also really helping out with our um, national outreach to to bring the public into our team and let them know what we're up to where we mentioned the naming contest we're also having a number of events at the ontario science center and at the manitoba museum here to uh let uh people young and old uh know what we're doing in space science and space technology and satellite engineering so we're we're thrilled to be doing this and uh, we're really thrilled at the support that we have both from magellan but of course from the canadian space agency as well now, is this the first satellite that's going to fly uh, from a school in Manitoba? I believe the answer to that is yes. Uh, I, we, um, it's certainly the first satellite that uh, schools have worked on uh, in Manitoba. So um, it's, it's not the first time that uh, equipment has gone to space that uh, schools in Manitoba have developed because... Uh, they, they, they've already had equipment on space station, but I do believe it's the first satellite. So it's a, it's a really important mission for us. Now, uh, speaking generally, not specifically to what you're doing, uh, with respect to CubeSats and nanosatellites, what uh, innovative technology areas do you think should be worked on? Uh, propulsion or something else? Yeah, good question. So... When I when I was forming our um, our research program, and and a lot of my research program is focused on, on on smaller satellites, but I think that a lot of this technology can be applied to bigger satellites. We, we were looking at I we took some time and looked back at how much time and money Magellan spent in developing the RadarSat Constellation mission, and uh, looking for possible efficiencies. And one of them that stood out was the amount of time that we spent simulating um, uh, control systems and uh, and simulating, characterizing, and going through the thousands and thousands of what-if scenarios that, uh, that are required uh, when you use control systems that don't adapt to their surroundings. And so we started asking questions like, well, what if you had a spacecraft that could learn how to control itself on orbit? And then you wouldn't need to go through the thousands and thousands of hours of uh, development and simulation that we currently do for our, uh, our more simple, non-adaptive, uh, say, PID controllers of, of space systems. So um, I, I think in, in terms of a, a sort of a general brush of where I think we can make the biggest impact right now, I think it would be in finding ways to allow spacecraft to adapt to various different scenarios on orbit, whether that be a failed uh, actuator or sensor, or, or even just uh, you, you know a, a satellite separation event that didn't go as planned. Uh, you know, it's not uncommon for satellites to 
separate with a little more tumble than anticipated or pointing in the wrong direction or, or, or even with um, polarity errors, which sadly happen far too often. And by a polarity error, I, I mean with a, a, a spacecraft that, that has an opposite idea of where a certain actuator is pointed at. So, and the, the net result for that can be if, if you don't compensate for it appropriately, when a spacecraft is launched, they usually try to point their satellite um, uh, solar arrays to the sun so they can charge the batteries. And if you have a polarity error of just the right kind, you can end up actively pointing your arrays away from the sun and you end up with a dead satellite and not too much time. So, so I think th th things like this that uh, you know, the, I mean, the, that that idea of a polarity error is something that we all work very, very hard to avoid in the space industry. But as a result, we spend a lot of time and money and effort doing a whole bunch of simulations and checks and double checks. And and I think that if we had systems on board that could monitor this uh, and intelligently detect these errors and correct them uh, on our own, we can have more reliable satellites and we can spend a lot less time uh, de de developing them. Now, you, you did bring up uh, propulsion, and, and, and I, I think that is, it's an important area of study um, for CubeSats. Uh, I, I think mostly because, uh, although I think I'd like to widen it a little bit, but, but you know, there are a lot of people that speak about the problems of space junk these days. And I know, uh, you know, you and I were at the Cassie Astro conference a couple of weeks ago when we heard many talks, uh, particularly from uh, the Department of Defense, about the dangers and uh, challenges we have ahead of ourselves with, um, with uh, space objects and avoiding collisions. And I think that if we could develop space propulsion systems that are small enough and low enough costs, we can start including them uh, as a matter of course into some of these smaller satellites that can get them out of orbit uh, or at least out of the way when uh, when they've done their useful life. And I, I think from a sustainability perspective of our industry, uh, that's going to become critical in the future. So I just have a couple of questions to wrap things up. Sure. Um, Although you're not working on Magellan's effort to modify the Black Brant sounding rocket for small satellite payloads, what are your thoughts on the project and how it might evolve? And do you think we need a, a small satellite launch capability in Canada? Yeah. So, uh, all right. So let, let me, I'll answer your last question first and I'll say, do we need a small sat launch capability in Canada? I think I think absolutely yes, uh, we, we we do. It's um, uh, although I think I can answer that a little bit more broadly and say we need more access to space for small satellites. And if there was a if there was that service in Canada and it was priced right, uh, I think it would get a lot of use. Um, but but now when when it comes to to Magellan's uh, efforts, as you mentioned about uh, resurrecting their uh, sounding rocket program to provide uh, you know short access to space. Uh, I, I am I am peripherally involved in, in that to, to the extent that I have technologies that we would like to um, uh, to demonstrate on on board, and so I'm I'm sort of positioning myself as the as the primary uh, tenant, if you will, of or the primary user or at least initial user of of this Black Brand sounding rocket system. Um, 
I, I, I think, you know, when, when people first hear about it, it's, it's very easy to sort of look at that and scoff and say, well, what I really need is orbital access. And what can I really do in 10 minutes or 20 minutes of, of suborbital space access? And, and, and to that, though, I, I'll say, you know, I, I think actually there's a lot. There really is a lot that you can do in, in 15 to 20 minutes. I mean, you, you look at what people have been able to do with 15 to 20 seconds of microgravity exposure in, uh, in, in parabolic flight. And uh, th this is this is an order of magnitude more than that uh, when we when we start talking about uh, suborbital um, uh, or several orders of magnitude more than that when you talk about suborbital access. And, and I think the other benefit of suborbital access is that depending on where you launch and how high you launch, you could conceivably get this hardware back. Uh, several variants of the Black Brand sounding rocket do return hardware to Earth, and so. So I, I, what, while I don't think that this is sort of a, a, a fix-all uh, solution, I think it does get us along that technology readiness ladder uh, for a certain number of specific technologies. And, uh, and I know from my perspective, uh, it, it is something that would advance our research uh, in a timely way and without having to spend a lot of money and, and wait for uh, orbital launches. So, um, you know, I, I've spent a lot of time working with Magellan about how we progress through this technology readiness ladder and, you know, the drone test bed fits into it, the uh, simulation test bed fits into it. Uh, I think that this, uh, uh, this suborbital rocket obviously fits into it and, and as does inexpensive access to, uh, to orbit, which, which you alluded to there as well with uh, the potential for Canadian small satellite access to space. So I think the answer to all those things are yes, they're all very useful and, and they all have a, a strong role to play in uh, technology development for the space industry. Okay, so my last question has nothing to do about your work. Uh, it's a personal one. What, sure. what uh, space fiction or nonfiction or other books uh, do you like and what are you reading? Ah, uh, okay. <laughs> all right, well, so, uh, so the, when it comes to space nonfiction, uh, I love reading about um, engineers that were not afraid to stick their necks out and uh, solve problems in different ways. Uh, I, I've always really, um, uh, uh, I've really enjoyed reading uh, the works of uh, Dr. Feynman. I, I, I love his book, uh, Surely You Must Be Joking, uh, Mr. Feynman, uh, be, be, because of his ability to look at problems from a, from a level that just makes them seem so simple. Uh, you know, I, I read once that one of the things that made Dr. Feynman such a, such a genius of his time was that he was able to take any problem, no matter how complex, and boil it down into something that was very extraordinarily simple uh, to to think about and demonstrate. You know, I mean, there's that iconic image of him standing at a podium during one of the hearings after the Challenger disaster and putting a small piece of O-ring in his glass of ice water, and 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 his way of making these problems seem so simple. Uh, I, I think is quite admirable. And so when, when, I, when I go to read uh, space or science engineering type nonfiction, uh, that's, what I, uh, that's what I reach for. But uh, you know, the, this, this might be a little bit embarrassing to, to admit or, or, or maybe not, but uh, the book that's on my bedside table right now is actually on uh, raising backyard chickens. <laughs> <laughs> I've, got, uh, 
I've got uh, 24 chickens right now in my backyard. I have a small hobby farm in just outside Enola, Manitoba. And uh, we're experimenting with our, I guess you could call our 10-foot diet, growing food on our little five-acre plot and uh, and seeing seeing how we do. It's sort of a family activity, and it's a, it's a way for me to uh, think about so maybe some of the simpler side of technology integration and how we can incorporate technology in a small hobby farm. So uh, that's uh, that's what's on my bedside table right now. But when it comes to uh, to space reading, uh, I, I really like uh, the works of uh, some of the simple yet complex minds of uh, Dr. Feynman. Very diverse topics there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> really are. <laughs> anyway, I want to thank Phil uh, for being a guest on the Space Cube podcast. He's, he's a great guest and he's doing some great work at the University of Manitoba. Uh, I hope I can get you back on the show uh, in the future. I would be thrilled to be back. And uh, thanks. I really appreciate all the work you do on Space Cube. Well, that's a wrap on this episode of the Space Cube podcast. If you like this show, please support us on Patreon. The address is patreon.com slash We really appreciate feedback. And to help us, we ask you consider to write a review on Apple Podcast or Google Play Music if you're so inclined. If you have any comments on this episode, you can email me at podcast at spaceq.ca or you can post them on our website at spaceq.ca where you'll find an archive of each episode. If you send me a comment by email, I'll write back to you as soon as I can. On Twitter, you can follow us at Canada in Space. And if you use Facebook, you can find all our articles and links to the podcast on our page, The Space Q. If you like the show, please subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app. <laughs>